a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to a country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day the tombs on night and day among the tombs on and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. They begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their, re re from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to pray to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God created the heavens and the earth and said, it is good. It was very good. And he rested. In the garden, God sets Adam and Eve in the garden. And think about the estate and the state for Adam and Eve. Mental, physical, relational, spiritual wholeness. There's a Hebrew term for it, shalom. We often translate it as peace, but it means far more. It means harmony, completion, fruitfulness. Everything is as it should be. And that was the state of things in the garden until the fall. When sin enters in and breaks the relationship with God and creates a need, and we're aware of that in Christianity, we talk about the need for forgiveness and salvation. But of course, the effects of the fall are more than just a need for forgiveness. Because the effects of the fall and sin entering in bring in every other form of brokenness and suffering and evil. 
that we see in the world around us and that we deal with ourselves. We're in a series right now here at CCV on our vision and values. We talk about ourselves being a gospel-driven, externally-focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. Last week, we looked at part one at being an externally-focused church, specifically at the idea of needing the gospel and wanting the good news of Jesus Christ to be spread everywhere. But today, we're looking at that second aspect, that piece that says we are called to push back the effects of sin and darkness and care for the broken and needy. It's one of the reasons why our church and the church council has committed to giving at least 20% of our income in outreach and mission. Some of that goes towards planting other churches, but a good portion of that goes towards ministries of mercy and justice locally and around the globe. So we support things like Five Talents, which, uh, which creates training and, uh, and credit unions and development in the most impoverished parts of the world. We do a lot to support International Justice Mission, which works in places where there is no rule of law, helping to free people who are being trafficked or enslaved. We give every week uh, our loose coin and cash to Anglican Relief and Development Fund, which does mercy ministries pushing back the effects of darkness in some of the poorest places And locally, we've given to the Lamb Center, which is a drop-in shelter for homeless people here in Fairfax, and to Committee for Helping Others, who we've partnered with quite a bit, which locally here in Vienna is meeting the needs of those closest to us. More recently, and in the coming months, we're going to be unfolding something that I'm excited about. It's called Envision Vienna. This actually has nothing to do with anything I ever came up with. But um, Susan Gates, who is here at CCV, came to me about a year ago and said, Johnny, what are we doing as a church? How are we going to be involved in the community? And I said, Susan, help me to find out what is already going on. Because what I don't want to do is do something that's already being done by others. So Susan went about to look at the churches in the area and ministries to see what was already being done. And working with Sue Hamlin at Vienna Presbyterian, we're going to be unfolding a collaboration with them and several other churches where every month there'll be another local mission service opportunity so that we're joining with or propagating more mission and ministry to the greatest needs around us. And ultimately, I think our church is still in the process of trying to find out our identity. What are we called to? Every church has a time and a place and a season. And this is ours, and we're still trying to figure out our vocation and identity, the role that we are to play in this community and in the wider D.C. area. But I think even more important to me than this kind of whole church or programmatic or what are we doing with our money, I think that ultimately the greatest effect we can have in being missional is how each one of us answers that call. We personally, individually, are called to extend the love and mercy and healing of God to the broken and needy all around us. This is exactly what God did. When the fall happens and sin enters in and brokenness enters, God does not just sweep over and right all wrongs. What does he do? He enters personally. He enters our sinfulness and brokenness and mess by himself and personally goes about dealing with the effects of sin. Everywhere Jesus went, he pushed back the effects of sin and darkness. 
I love that that part in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan the lion finally enters the frozen land of Narnia and everywhere that Aslan goes, snow and ice begins to melt and flowers begin to pop up and grow for the first time in decades. When Jesus enters the world that we read about in the Gospels, everywhere he goes, frozen winter begins to thaw and the effects of the sin and the fall are being rolled back. The story that we're looking at today is in Mark 5, and it's one of a longer episode of stories that that all link together in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three Gospels that record this story. They all start off with Jesus and the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes onto the sea, and the, the boat is almost swamped. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep in the back. And they wake him up. Jesus, wake up. We're about to die. The raging storm is going to swamp our boat. And what does Jesus say? He says, peace. He says, shalom. He says to the wind and the waves, be whole again. And the wind and the waves stop. The next thing is the story that we're looking at today. Jesus steps on land and a man who is demon possessed comes charging down. Dealing with the spiritual forces of evil, Jesus says, get out, and drives them away to make the man whole again. The very next day, in both in all the stories, Jesus and the disciples cross back over the Sea of Galilee, and he's met by a man named Jairus, a synagogue ruler whose daughter is dying. Jesus is on his way to go and minister to her, but while he's on his way, a woman who is bleeding internally, dealing with sickness for decade plus goes up and touches his cloak and is healed. And Jesus not only heals her physically, but turns and talks to her and meets her emotional needs, restoring her completely before going on to Jairus' house and raising the dead. Everywhere Jesus went, the storms, evil, sickness, death, he is pushing back the effects of sin and darkness. In Mark 5, we see an amazing picture of Jesus doing just this with one individual, this man with a legion of demons. So what I want to do this morning is look at that passage, look at that story, see what Jesus does, how what he does for this man is what he offers to all of us, and how it calls us to live likewise. What I see Jesus doing in this passage is he sees the man's need, He enters into the man's brokenness and he engages with it in order to redeem and resurrect it. So the scene is one that we just read. The scene is there in verses 1 and 2 of Mark 5. The disciples and Jesus come to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is not a Jewish part of the land. This is across the ocean or across a big lake into a Gentile part. And when Jesus steps out on the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So a demon-possessed man, who we happen to know from other accounts, is naked, comes charging after Jesus, yelling at him. And Jesus sees him. And we get a picture from Mark, the gospel writer, about this man. And I want you to just listen to some of the descriptions that we get in here. This man lived among the tombs. No one could bind him. They often tried to bind him with shackles, but he would tear it apart. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day amongst the tombs and on the mountainsides, 
he was crying out and bruising himself with stones. You know, the first thing that I see that Jesus does is he sees the man's need. He simply sees what is going on in the man's life. And think just for a moment about this. This story just captured my mind a few years ago when I read it and then reread it. This man has been chained by his family and friends. He breaks the chains and goes to live amongst tombs with dead bodies. His life is like an animal. It's a subhuman existence. We know from the Gospel of Luke that he was naked, and from later in our passage in Mark that he is clothed, that he had been naked at this point. So in the cold and in the rain, he's completely exposed. He has no food, starving, hungry, suffering miserably. His physical existence was absolute horrendous misery. And on top of that, he's alone, right? The guy is driven from everyone he had ever known. His family, his mother and father, his brothers and sisters, his closest friends, the people he'd grown up with and played with, they chase him away. He's completely and totally alone, except for a horde of demons constantly tormenting him and dead, decaying bodies and bones all around him. Solitary confinement is one of the most inhuman existences that you can ever be in. People who deal with extended solitary confinement in prison, they usually deal with mental illness to the point of insanity. There's usually self-abuse, cutting, amputations, attempts at suicide. It's an inhuman existence to be put all by yourself. We're not created to be alone. This man was all alone, completely forsaken. And on top of that, he's essentially imprisoned. While the people around him can't chain him up, Satan has him in chains. The demons tormenting and enslaving him. And from what I've read about the demonic, basically you're dealing with fear and terror constantly in your mind. And so what does he do? He tries to hurt himself with stones, cutting himself crying out night and day. He's suicidal. He's in emotional and spiritual darkness, complete and total despair. His existence is a living hell. And Jesus sees. Jesus sees his darkness, despair, and misery. And I wonder if we have the eyes to see the darkness and brokenness and need around us. You know, I think one way we can look at that is at the brokenness and need around the world. Global poverty where people are living on less than a dollar a day. We're places where there is no rule of law, where governments don't enforce the laws and the law enforcement is corrupt and people are trafficked and enslaved. Where there are orphans with no one to care for them or even the effects of poverty in our own country. And I think those issues of systemic and global brokenness and need are things that we need to give to and participate in. And ultimately, that might be a part of your calling in life, is to go and make a difference on that scale. But this morning, not focusing on that, I'd actually like to look at something a little bit closer to home. Think about what Jesus does with this man. It's the same thing he seems to do everywhere. He deals with the need before him because he is constantly outward-facing 
in his approach to life. This is what one theologian called proximate mission. Proximate meaning nearby. Who is near you? Where do you see the effects of sin on your street? Where is there brokenness in your school? A lot of poverty is financial, but not all poverty and brokenness is. Think about if you just walked on your street and actually got to know the challenges that people are facing. The statistics are out there. The percentage of people dealing with anxiety, depression, and extreme mental illness is very high. Addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, etc., spreading. One in five people have dealt with abuse. That's rampant effects of brokenness that you could probably find on any street, in any office, down any hallway here in Northern Virginia. Jesus, if he was walking along here, would not just see somebody. He would see somebody and go deeper and see not just the pretty smiles, but the marriage that's breaking apart because of selfishness or infidelity and the effects of pain and suffering that that produced. You know, one of the things that we often overlook when we're looking at brokenness and need is is loneliness. You know, we live in a transient culture. It is hard to get to know people. Many people are new to this area and have no family or friends nearby. And when you have no family or friends, your house doesn't feel like a home. You don't feel like you have a place. We're made to be known and known deeply and intimately. And if you've dealt with singleness and wanted to be married, if you've lost a spouse or if you're just new to an area, it's incredibly hard not to deal with that ache of loneliness and not being known. And then there's loss itself. You know, every time Thanksgiving or Christmas rolls around, I think about the number of people that I've dealt with as a minister who have lost a spouse or a mom or a son how hard it is to go into those seasons of joy and family when you've lost somebody so close to you. Death is one of those effects of the brokenness and sin in this world that cause deep pain in so many people all around us. In fact, if you really start entering into people's lives, you're going to find out that it seems like the effects of sin are winning. So how can we see better the need around us? You know, one way is to raise awareness. And this is often with uh, global and systemic issues. You find that there are films or campaigns or advertisements where you see kids in poverty and it raises our awareness. So one way to see better the need around us is to raise awareness. But a way that I'm talking about today that I want us to think about is that a very good way to see need is to be involved in people's lives. It's hard to get involved in somebody's life and not begin to peel back the onion and see pain or suffering or brokenness in their life. Sometimes the need is obvious, like with this guy, Legion, who had this horde of demons and is running naked at Jesus. This guy has need. 
But other times it's less obvious, like in the next episode when the woman who is dealing with internal bleeding walks up in a crowd and touches Jesus' cloak. People around her may not have even known the depth of suffering and need that she was dealing with. But Jesus did and stops to see and enter into her suffering. I find that for me, one of the hard things is that when I meet somebody or get to know somebody or see somebody, one of two things comes out in me. It's either the competitive side or the comparative side. So as a guy, guys tend to, and not all guys do this, but some of us guys tend to walk into a room with that competitive spirit. It's like, who's the alpha male in here? And we try and size each other up. So rather than coming in to get to know somebody, I'm coming in to defend my turf in some way. And when you're coming in with a competitive attitude, it's really hard to get to know whether somebody is dealing with something beyond what you see. Or, of course, there's the comparative side. When you see somebody, you see their life, their job, their family, their house, their car, and think they've got it all together. Until, of course, you dig a little deeper and see the addiction or the brokenness or the pain in their life. As soon as you dig a little further, and engage and become involved in their life, rather than competition or comparison, it's compassion that begins to move us. This is what Jesus is doing. He's engaging in proximate mission, seeing who is before him. He sees the brokenness and need of this man, and he enters in. So Jesus sees, and then he enters in. Now this demon-possessed man This demon-possessed man is a Gentile who's living amongst dead bodies. Jesus is Jewish. So let's think about this for a minute. This man is filled with Satan, the epitome of evil. He is a Gentile living in a Gentile land. And he is unclean in Jewish terms because he's touching dead bodies all the time. He is unclean, outcast, Gentile, as far as you can possibly get from the Jewish God. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They didn't like the tax collectors. They didn't want to deal with them. What would the Pharisees and religious people have done with this guy? But what does Jesus do? He sees the need, and he enters into the man's brokenness. No one is too sinful, too outcast, too broken for Jesus. He is always willing to enter in. The man possessed by the demons, calls out, What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And notice what Jesus does at that point. Or rather, what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't run away, nor does he chase the man away. My guess is for years, if not decades, every person the man had met chased him away or ran away. He had not dealt with human engagement besides shackles and chains and abuse for years. And Jesus stands there. Sometimes the greatest mercy, sometimes the greatest pushing back of the effects of sin is the ministry of presence. Simply being with somebody. Simply showing up as they're dealing with suffering and saying, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Jesus dealt with him with mercy by being present. And secondly, Jesus 
takes the anger and the power of Satan and directs it at himself instead of at the man. He redirects the focus of this enemy towards himself. Jesus does this sort of thing all the time. So get this picture, right? The woman caught in adultery in John 8, what does Jesus do? This woman caught in adultery, it's always been speculated she may have had like a towel around her or maybe a a blanket or something, but there she is in all of her nakedness and shame. And what does Jesus do? He bends down and begins to write on the ground. And all these religious leaders who are angry at this woman turn and look at Jesus. He takes the focus off of her and puts it on himself. He does the same thing with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was hated by all the people in his town of Jericho. Everyone had their their hatred towards Zacchaeus, this tax collector. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to your house today. And instantly the crowds who hate Zacchaeus now turn their anger at Jesus, grumbling, saying, what is he doing? Why is he going to the house of Zacchaeus? Instead of their anger being directed at Zacchaeus, Jesus focuses it on himself, saying, I will take their anger. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he stands there and engages the man with the demons. For that moment, the demons are not terrorizing the man anymore because they're having to deal with Jesus. And we read in verse 10 that they have to beg Jesus for mercy, just probably like the man had begged these demons for mercy for years. Jesus stays and enters in and redirects the anger and evil towards himself. If we take the steps of entering into somebody's need and brokenness, I will say this, it will be costly. You end up giving of your money, your time, your emotional resources. You'll be spiritually spent, physically worn out. Here's what I've found. It is much easier to not get involved with broken and needy people. Just simply take care of your house and your yard and your kids. Make sure everything is just so. And just let let those people take care of themselves. Because the reality is when you start extending love and mercy and care to the most broken and needy people, your yard starts to fall apart. Your house gets messy. Your triathlon time goes down. Your fantasy football team suffers. You can't put time and energy into things that are really important in life. Entering into somebody else's brokenness is always going to be costly. Because ultimately you're bearing their suffering with them. You have to deal with the ache and emotion of longings unmet as you're walking with them in their longings unmet. But it's exactly what Jesus does. He enters in and pushes against the darkness in this man's life. And he says, come out. Come out to Satan. He confronts the man's oppressors because the man has no strength to do it himself. He walks with the man and says, I will be your advocate for you. I will be present with you until we get rid of this. Because ultimately, Jesus engages the brokenness of people. He sees, he enters, and he engages. He deals with, he confronts, he challenges the brokenness and need. Jesus engages the man's brokenness in order to redeem, restore, and resurrect him. When the townspeople come out to see the man that they had known that had grown up with them, 
What do they find? The man who they had tried to chain, who had been naked and crazy and demonic, they see him sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. Think about all the ways Jesus reversed this man's estate, the state of his affairs. He had been imprisoned by the demonic. Jesus sets him free. When we meet him, he's naked, exposed, ashamed. Now he's clothed because Jesus has covered him. He had been suicidal, despairing, terrorized. Jesus brings peace into his life. He had been dead to everybody, living amongst the dead. Jesus resurrects him, gives him life and hope. Jesus sees, enters, engages with the man's brokenness and need. And he does the same for us. You know, we talk about the cross as the center of the good news of Jesus Christ. The cross is not just God's answer to the need for forgiveness of sins. It, it is that. The cross is also God's answer to the effects of the fall, to all brokenness and need. Think about how Jesus enters in to all of our brokenness and need and the needs of creation. Like, like Legion, like this man who was possessed, Jesus bears physical and emotional torture and misery and pain on the cross. Like this possessed man, Jesus is stripped naked. He is hung in shame. He's bound by his own people. Like this demon-possessed man, Jesus is abandoned by his friends and family, forsaken by God the Father. This man lived a living hell. Jesus endures hell for him and for us. So that Satan and sin and sickness and suffering and even death do not win. Because Jesus won on the cross. The story ends in a way that I think is absolutely great. In Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19. As Jesus was getting back into the boat to go to the other side, the demon-possessed man, who's now in his right mind, begs Jesus to be able to go with him. Jesus, can I go with you? You've made me right. I want to stay with you and be with you always. And what does Jesus say? Unlike he did with anybody else, everybody else he said, come and follow me. With this man he says, go home. Go home. And for this man, that was a complete act of mercy and grace. He had been abandoned and homeless, and hungry, and ashamed, and alone. And Jesus says, just go home. Go have dinner with your family. Go enjoy your friends again. Why don't you just go and sleep in your old bed? Remember the one you grew up in? Go sleep in that bed. Jesus wants the man to know laughter, and warmth, and conversation, and human touch. Jesus knows all of our brokenness, all of our suffering, all of our shame, all of our guilt. And he wants us to know his mercy and healing and wholeness and salvation. Christmas 
and Advent. Christmas looks back to the Incarnation, to the time when Jesus entered our humanity and dealt with all of our brokenness. Advent is looking forward to the coming of Jesus again, to right all wrongs, to bring wholeness and shalom. We live in between. In between Christmas and Advent. We are those in whom Jesus has taken up residence by his spirit. We are those through whom Jesus is healing, restoring, and loving this broken world. Let's pray. God, our Father, you loved us, and in our brokenness you sent your Son to enter our sin and suffering and brokenness. I pray that we, who in this room need your healing and grace, would receive it through your Son, Jesus. That we would enter into other people's lives and live to push back the effects of sin and darkness, caring for the broken and needy all around us. Until you come again, Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Yeah.